Hello, and welcome to another episode of Mere Fidelity. My name is Matthew Lee Anderson. I am your host for the show. We are back. Oh, are we back? It's been a long summer break. Uh, we're glad that uh, we had some time away from each other because in the hot summer months, we might have actually done bodily violence to one another, but oh we've had gosh, some time man. away and some time to cool off and, you know, rediscover that we may actually like each other a little bit, which is good. Derek, how'd you spend your summer? Did you do anything interesting? Oh, yeah, just uh, just a few things. Uh, picked up our apartment, moved it across country, uh, now live in California and start a new ministry. With, you become uh, a Californian. Again. 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 That again. seems like a step backwards. An that Orange almost County. Seems like, that almost seems like Lot's wife looking backwards. And only, only this time she won and she made it and, and, and Sodom isn't, isn't, isn't uh, a wasteland. It's this glorious tract of land called Orange County where you can't grab the weather. I don't know where this like is going. Like with your hands. You've it, just it, totally it's lost beautiful us. air. This is really ridiculous. Um, well, it is good to be back uh, to our listeners at home. We are very excited about the things we have in store over the next year, we actually had a planning session where we got together and talked and, and tried to put together some plans. We're not the most organized crew, as you may or may not be able to tell, um, but we do love doing the show and we love hearing from all of you. Uh, and we, we are very excited about the things that we have on tap. So it's going to be a great year and we are kicking it off perhaps at the highest point. It might be all downhill from here. It's possible. We will see. We're delighted to have on the show, I think for the second time, second or third, second yeah. or third time, our mm. very own Jake Midor. Uh, Jake is the author of a terrific new book, In Search of the Common Good, Christian Fidelity. Excuse me. I say the one, I can't say the one word that's in the name of our podcast. Christian yeah. Fidelity in a fractured world. Uh, the forward is by Tim Keller, and Keller rightly raves about this book. If you've not yet bought your copy or 10 for your reading group at your church, <laughs> you should go do that. It's actually a really wonderful book to uh, uh, to work through as actually, a small group, and uh, especially especially in with the um, uh, political season, kicking off really in full this fall. It's just a great time to read this book as a group. So I strongly commend it to you. We're going to talk about it today. The best part about it for groups is that it doesn't have prefabricated questions at the end of each chapter. So you actually have to read and think on your own. I just love that about this book. Thank you to IVP and thank you, Jake, for doing that. Jake, it's great to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. Um, so we well, let's start very broad. Uh, why... Did you write this? What's the book about? Give us a sales pitch. Yeah. So the one sentence kind of elevator pitch would be it's a book about how Christians can be um, good neighbors, which is to say how we can fulfill the law of love um, in a time of fragmentation. The longer pitch is just that um, it was an interesting thing as I was reading. I was reading these books about kind of Christian decline. Um, Rod Dreher's Benedict Option, Anthony Eslin, Out of the Ashes, Archbishop Chapu's Strangers in a Strange Land. 
um, other similar books at the same time that I was reading The Unwinding by George Packer and Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance and um, Our Kids by Putnam, Bob Putnam. <laughs> I can never remember his first name. Yeah, Robert. Um, Robert, okay. I Half the time I mention the book, I think I call him Bill instead of Bob. But um, <laughs> I don't know if he goes by Bob. I, 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 I've never I, heard I, him called. I didn't know really. you were on a first name basis. No, yeah. no, no. I've I've seen him referred to as Bob in interviews by people. Oh. So I thought that was just what he went by. Bobby, but, perhaps. I, I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was reading these very different genre of books next to each other, and felt like the two are closely tied together. I think part of that is probably a function of being reformed. Uh, that was actually something Brad East kind of helped me see after the fact, is that it's harder to maintain a real strong Christ against culture posture, um, which is implicitly what's behind a lot of the Christian decline books, not all of them, but some, um, when you're working from reformed assumptions about the nature of the church, about um, political, about politics, and so even though I'm dealing with a lot of the same things as Rod or Bishop Chapu, Archbishop Chapu, um, I'm coming at it from this reformed angle that's trying to draw together civil decline and ecclesial decline into a single narrative. So that's basically the argument. So can I just ask one question about your reading habits? Do you find... Did you find when you were reading all that that a steady diet of decline books was good for your mental and spiritual health? <laughs> um, yeah. That's a fair question. I don't, that's actually, I don't know how to answer that. I, <laughs> I mean, just like the last several years have personally been difficult, regardless of my reading, I think. So I haven't thought about how much my reading was in fact affecting my mood but that's a good question um i can tell you yeah. what i think about it i mean so that's <laughs> <laughs> like that's like matt's tagline well i can tell you what i think about it any given subject all right go on go yeah so now i've got to right so jake it seems to me that um the story of decline is a story that's been told for the last 75 years if not longer mm -hmm. and at some point it's a story that has to be right and maybe we're <laughs> in that point but it also seems to me like it's a pretty familiar story and it's 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 actually makes it in some ways harder to get to the kind of constructive work that you want to do within this book mm -hmm. um is that am i wrong on that no, I, I don't think you're wrong. I think history moves slowly. And it's easier to remember that when you're studying it in a classroom than when you're living it. So we look at this thing now, for example, called the Reformation, and we perceive it in a very particular way. And that's not actually how it was lived. There was a hundred years of ferment before Luther ever comes onto the scene. And then it takes 100, 125 years for a lot of things to work itself, work themselves out after Luther comes on the scene. Um, and I think you could probably trace something similar with our moment, because I think it, it's not that C.S. Lewis, Abolition of Man, or Christopher Dawson's work on religion and culture, T.S. Eliot, um, 
their critiques are not saying they're, they're positioned at a different time chronologically, but they're highlighting a lot of the same questions. And I think what's happened since then would back up a lot of what they're saying. And so I would say we're living in this moment that Lewis, Elliot, Dawson, Chesterton um, anticipate, but we're 100 years, 50 years further along. And so things have had more time to develop, which sharpens our understanding in some ways, probably helps us correct some aspects of Elliot or Lewis that aren't right. Sorry, do you, did you just say that there might be parts of C.S. Lewis that are not right? I, <laughs> I'm, I'm flummoxed over here. I mean, he, he takes a pretty iffy position on divorce and marriage and mere Christianity, but... Them uh, <laughs> spiting words. St. Clive, uh, getting owned on mere fidelity. You heard it here first. Um, <laughs> I, I had a question on this. Uh, so right in the title, Search of the Common Good, I, I wanted to connect that with your uh, comment about the fact that you're approaching... Uh, this decline uh, from reformed presuppositions uh, and principles relating church and and really the world and the culture that's hard to kind of do the hard Christ against culture view. And you're, you're appealing to uh, Richard Niebuhr's typology of like the five relation, you know, fivefold relations, Christ, you know, within culture, against culture, above culture, et cetera. Uh, and I had a question on that. Just, I would love for you to spell that out because one of the things you do is try to show early on the way the, the, the unwinding of America in general, the fracturing of America in general, uh, has its analog or its, um, effects within the church itself. Uh, and I'm, I, I was trying to figure out where you, where you see the line of of causation is if the unwinding of the church is just a, a lag time, uh, you know, a, a lag effect of the unwinding of, of the common life and culture. Uh, and, and so that's one, one question I had, but the other one is just the way that you see your reformed ideas, uh, principles, political theology, uh, impacting the way in a sense we search for the common good as the, as the church within our cultural context. So, you know, re rewrite the book right now in this next question, but, but, but really, but like may, may, front load that make yeah. explicit what you think you wasn't maybe as explicit uh, within the book. So, so that, yeah. that was clear enough. So in terms of how the unwinding T's Packers term informs the church, if you begin with the idea that human beings kind of enter the world as these, essenceless creatures who narrate their identity that's going to affect how you relate to your church um, it's going to make that attachment much more brittle um, because once the church ceases to help me develop my identity in this way i leave and i think you could even see that arguably in some of the instagram deconversions that we're seeing is there's this sense of um, my Christian faith aided me in the cultivation of my identity for a long time, but now it actually is a hindrance to that 
because I feel it creating this conflict within myself. And so I need to let it die. It had its time, but we've moved past it. So I, I think that's the church is existing within a social order mm-hmm. and the social order that we're existing inside of says these things about identity and it informs the way we approach church life. Mm-hmm. So that's one piece. Um, in terms of the reformed angle, so if you're Anabaptist or a certain type of Baptist, um, Jonathan Lehman, who's a friend of mine, and I have this ongoing argument about this issue, um, but the, the radical Anabaptists, like the Bruderhof, would have a similar kind of thing going on. Um, the church is in some sense a more real political community than the magistrate or the government or um, labor or the family um, neighborhoods. The the church is kind of the place where the, the term Jonathan uses is it's this embassy for the age to come. And so he even says in one of his books that our political lives begin in the church. And I think a lot of my friends in the Bruderhof would say something similar. Um, Begins and ends. Yeah. 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 That's the difference. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's well said. Um, So when you have that framework, you can have this wall between the church community and the rest of your life in the world, your job, your family, which is kind of bizarre to me. Um, (laughs) All of these different communities we're involved in are kind of interpreted through the church um, or even excluded from the church. And if you're Catholic, it's not quite the same thing, but you do have this idea of this very hierarchical framing of community where the church sits on top in a certain sense. It gets a little weird depending on how you parse the two swords. Um, but Imagine the, the church relationship to is, yeah, it, it, the, the head of the church is Peter. And so he has a certain authority. And so the church kind of sits atop society. Um, I I always think of this when I'm in the Twin Cities because the Cathedral of St. Paul actually sits on top of what's now called Cathedral Hill. And it looks out over the city of St. Paul and notably is taught like higher up than the state capitol. Um, So you can stand on the steps of the cathedral and look down on the capitol. And if you're reformed, you can't make that ecclesiological move. Um, And so what a lot of folks would say, and this is contested, but I, I like it, is that the institutional church is one human society that exists within natural a natural polis and it exists alongside the magistrate and the family and has unique roles within that society but it also has limitations within that society and so because those lines are um, a little more permeable maybe not as hard as you would get with the like the Bruderhof, certainly, um, 
it changes the way that you position yourself relative to your city, your neighborhood, your local government, and even so the, on. Even the decline narrative itself, in terms of complicity and and uh, agency and efficacy, I would imagine, as well. Yeah. I would say so. so, so in that sense, so when you when you advocate searching for the common good, the common good you have in mind uh, is a truly common good shared with the rest of the neighborhood, the non-Christian bits of the neighborhood too, not just the cloistered, uh, you know, the confines of the church campus or the enclave that you formed uh, when all of your church neighbors uh, bought the one neighborhood together. <laughs> Uh, right and just live on that street uh and your kids safely play there together uh, is that kind of what i'm hearing yeah so common good is a tricky term that gets used a lot without being defined um i'm not talking about common good in the sense of like we have acquired enough wealth that everybody is comfortable and therefore the common good has been served um common goods are simply goods that must be enjoyed in common to be properly enjoyed. So the example I've used elsewhere um, is if a violinist went off and wanted to play a famous symphony um, by themselves, they actually couldn't do it because you need all these other uh, musicians to play the piece correctly. It's more than just the violin. So the problem we run into, um, my friend Jose uses the um, example, he said, we think that the common good is like a pizza, and if the pizza's big enough that everybody gets a slice, we're good. And that's not actually what it means. So there, there's many common goods, um, but what I'm talking about in the book is the common good of the polity of our life together in our neighborhood, in our place, um, where we enjoy relationship and the fruit of a close community that can't really be replicated by individuals hmm. um, alone because they don't have the resources. Now, Jake, that was the Wendell Berry note that you have just struck. Um, maybe it was the Wendell Berry gong. It's more than a note. Uh, it's it's perhaps the uh, theme that runs throughout the whole of the work. And I wonder, with respect to the common good, as you've just described it, uh, about the boundaries of that community. So I'm interested in hearing you extrapolate a little bit from the work that you did within your book to questions of nationalism, which, of course, mm. have been uh, really prevalent, shall we say, really mm -hmm. prominent within certain quarters of conservative discourse over the last three or four months. Um, and even back to 2016, it was it was a central theme of the election as well. Um, but we've seen a lot of theoretical work being done or trying to be done around uh, articulating what it means to be a nationalist conservative. And I'm curious to hear your reflections or your thoughts on the way in which this common good as you've described it as a kind of neighborhood-based common good um, helps us understand some of the crises that we might feel as americans uh, is that the sort of identity or community that that you think 
is worth preserving as a part of the common good or should we throw it overboard and just engage in our little hobbit parties together with our nearest and dearest friends who live beside us so i'll preface this by saying that i have not gotten around to reading hazoni yet so i can't comment on how he develops the idea of nationalism um what I would say, though, is that if you begin with the idea that all human societies are voluntary, that's going to lead you in certain directions in how you think about immigration, for example, um, which I think you see now on the left. Um, it, it is a push for open borders, it seems to be. Um, but that's because of the underlying assumptions about the nature of human community. Um, on the other hand, if you, well, to use an example, I can't remember what book I read it in, unfortunately, but there was a book they were talking to, a, maybe it was, I don't know, I did adoption actually. Like Rod was talking to a monk and the monk was talking about the way that the monastery offers hospitality. Um, and it's open, but it's open to a point because there is a certain structure that shapes their shared life in the monastery that they can't give up without losing the community. And so I think in theory, nations would have a similar um, right as the monastery to say that we have a shared life together and because of that shared life we do have limits to the ways we can and cannot offer hospitality to people where all of this goes really haywire of course is that i don't think you can speak of the contemporary united states as having such a life. I don't know what that would be. And so it makes the immigration conversation really complicated because moving from the principle of nations are real things, the polity has an integrity that should be respected to actual applications in the United States is tough. Um, there's a piece that we ran several years ago at Miro by Matt Peterson um, about immigration that captures a lot of where I am on it. Um, because the other piece within our contemporary context is that a lot of the immigrants that are wanting to resettle somewhere, they're coming from places that have been destabilized by things that the Western world has done. And so that adds another layer of complexity. Um, so on the particular question of how do we handle immigration right now, I feel very torn and I don't have great answers. I think in theory, nations have rights to have borders because communities have rights to have borders because communities must have certain norms and rules that shape their life together in order to exist. So, okay, so that's that. I, I wasn't expecting you to sort of necessarily give us a policy answer on how many immigrants okay. America could allow in in order to still be America. 
uh, I think that's too much to ask from anyone. And certainly this sort of book that, you know, this is your sort of project is to try to articulate some of the fundamental questions, some of the fundamental issues and to let policy questions flow out of those. Um, I do think that I, I want to ask a little bit about the way in which you have a criticism about so-called voluntary, voluntarily mm-hmm. based communities. Mm-hmm. It seems that America, even now, does have something like a shared understanding, which is a that we are a voluntary community, a voluntarily formed community around a certain kind of adherence to the rule of law as paradigmatically expressed in the Constitution of the United States, states uh, which is uh, informed by a commitment to a certain kind of dignity and, uh, in one sense, equality of all people as articulated by the Declaration of the Independence. Um, to the extent that that is a a central dimension of what it means to be American. It seems like the value or the virtue of it is that it is an an invol excuse me a voluntary community. And if you let that go, don't you risk reverting to the kind of ethnic or uh, blood based communities, communal structures that go awry in all sorts of ways. Okay. Is that a worry that I should have? Is it a reasonable oh, worry? Oh, no, I think, I think absolutely. I think if you look at the trajectory of a lot of right-wing movements on immigration, I think it's absolutely a good worry. Um, so I, I'm reminded now there's a passage in O'Donovan this this will maybe help. You know, this straight, is, this is the, the defense way to move against heart. Matt. Well, Hold on, but O'Donovan. Me to O'Donovan. You, you've actually. you've won so. mere fidelity for the year. Congratulations. <laughs> um, so O'Donovan is talking about competing ideas of freedom. I think this is in Resurrection and Moral Order. Matt probably already knows the quote. Um, he talks about the difference between envisioning freedom as potency or possibility, and he notes in talking about potency. The point is not that we eliminate all possibilities, but that you don't need a lot. And once you are actualizing one of them, that's where you're going. And so I do wonder if one of the ways of addressing that question is to say that, yeah, it's not that you are born, like I'm not advocating for a caste system or something like that, where you're born into a role that's non-negotiable in its entirety. Um, What I am trying to argue for is that the mere multiplication of choices is not going to make us free. It's actually going to undermine our communal life. And in doing that, it's going to make us isolated and anxious and depressed, which is what we're seeing in a lot of social science data. And so, yeah, you do need the love is free. It can't be coerced. And so it does need to be chosen at some point 
And there's a sense in which it even needs to be chosen every day. Um, I'm just thinking about marriage now. You make that choice one time in front of a congregation and witnesses. There's also a different sense in which you make that choice every day um, to live in love with this person. Um, those are different choices. But there's also constraints that are baked into that that you can't transgress without altering the relationship or even destroying the relationship. And so, yeah, I wouldn't, I'm not arguing for a caste system. I'm not arguing for some kind of medieval feudalism where you're born a serf, you live and die a serf or something like that. Um, my particular concern is with this idea that the way toward freedom, the way toward the good life is maximizing the number of choices and reducing the number of outside influences on your choice, um, which is not the same thing as wanting to eliminate choice entirely. Is that better? Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. So, so I guess if Matt's, if Matt's question was, uh, if we get rid of John Locke, what next? What do you, what do you, what, what are we replacing it with? Uh, I suppose uh, I'll ask the question. Um, uh, if we get, if we get rid of Adam Smith, uh, what are you also, uh, suggesting we replace him with just because there's, there's a very, there's a very strong critique of, it's not just the, the liberal political order. It's the, it's the neoliberal liberal capitalist order. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I use the word neoliberalism. Nobody knows what it means. It's just provocative. But in any case, there's there's a lot of critiques of of the capitalist order and and our the the current economic system and the way uh, yeah the choice maximization that you point to it makes us uh, anxious, miserable, has a uh, bad uh, it has corrosive effects on our on our uh, local communities. It hollows out uh, neighborhoods, so on and so forth. Uh, and so you talk about kind of like local economies and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, one criticism someone might make somewhere is, uh, okay, so you're criticizing capitalism, but like, I mean, you did not at all call for the properly socialist, uh, revolution that, that we need. Do you think we can just Wendell Berry? trade food our way out of out of the morass of our current economic you know uh anxiety and and mess we're in so so that's i guess if not adam smith what what is your proposal here so part of it is you actually kind of posed two separate questions there because one is what do i say to the hypothetical democratic socialist who is reviewing the book and thinks it's insufficiently revolutionary and one is what do i say to the um happy capitalist who thinks acton capital institute what <laughs> what do you say to the acton institute what do you say to like i don't know commentary or left catholics or something yeah so I guess the thing I would want to say on the market side of things is that the idea that markets descend from the heavens 
from this kind of sky hook. And if government just gets out of the way, they'll do everything we need to to order our material lives together is silly. Um, markets are defined by norms and rules, and those norms and rules comes from lots of places. Um, but if you think about something like intellectual property right, property rights, for example, have an enormous impact on how our economy works, have a huge impact on farming, because this is how Monsanto does a lot of what they do, um, is they say that their seeds are their intellectual property. Um, intellectual property rights are entirely defined by the magistrate, and I don't know how they could be otherwise. Um, so I would say that a lot of these changes on I would want to make talking to someone from the right would be we have a market that has been de designed to do certain things, and I think we should design it to do other things. Um, and I would want to begin by just being honest about the fact that everyone has ideas about how markets should be created and structured. Um, and there's not some kind of, like I, I'm reading a book now um, by a couple folks from Focus on the Family called American Restoration. And in several of their chapters, they structure the argument, well, if we just got the meddling hand of government out of the picture, everything would be fine. Sometimes that might be true. Um, but sometimes that just leaves the Wild West, and that's not actually good. And it's not actually very Protestant to take such a position um, because it's advocating for the absence of social structure, social order, which is one of the earliest battles that we had. It was one of our earliest fights with the radicals. Um, so that's what I would want to say to someone coming from the right. To someone coming from the left, I would say that um, I think when we try to have a centrally planned economy, for example, you intentionally or unintentionally, both have happened historically, you really destroy the personal sense of ownership and responsibility to one's people and place um, because all of those things get outsourced to the planners in their office, wherever it may be. Um, and a lot of the things that make life delightful, which are small and local, get broken when people who are far away from a place and don't understand it try to regulate it. Um, this is something, again, we see a lot in Nebraska where we do run into these issues. There was an example a few years ago where, and I, sh I shouldn't get the specifics because I don't remember every detail, but there were some issues with the EPA where they had set up this well-intentioned regulation, and yet it was not, they hadn't understood the local life of these Nebraska farms, and the bill was written in a way that created needless difficulties for them. And I think that's the danger when you do have a more centrally planned kind of economy is that that will happen a lot um, because human societies are complicated and can't really easily be steered um, by a revolutionary center. I also just think that revolution is almost always going to be dangerous overreach 
Um, and so I've got the like Dutch anti-revolutionary voice in my head that also makes me nervous about a lot of more. I mean, this is the difference between social Democrat and Marxist in some way, right? Like a social Democrat is going to be very open to trying to structure markets that work for everyone, um, but don't necessarily need to have centrally planned everything to make that happen. So that's the kind of distinction I think I want to make, but I'll also just acknowledge I'm still thinking about these things. I, I feel more clear about what's wrong with what we have than I do on every aspect of what I want to change, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense. So I, it, it leads into a question that I've long had, Jake. So Oliver O'Donovan also uh -huh. has a quote <laughs> in The Ways of Judgment. Uh, where Welcome he says something, to Mere Fidelity. We just quote Oliver bits of O'Donovan. O'Donovan against each other. That's right. Um, uh, so in Ways of Judgment, he says something like, the common good is not to be conceived as a giant millennium dome, uh, an architectonic project which could be foisted upon a people, imposed upon them. Rather, it's it kind of emerges by happenstance in one way, right? As lots of smaller communities pursue mm -hmm. their common goods, mm -hmm. the common good, in as much as there is a single common good, arises from within that. That's how Oliver frames it. Um, I think I want to ask a question that he has reflected on in recent years, uh, which is, does talking about the common good require a definite political program? Does it require a certain set of commitments around what people should do in politics? And if so, how are Christians supposed to evaluate that? Another way of asking this question is, if, I've been, if I'm an evangelical in 2020 and I'm reading In Search of the Common Good, Christian Fidelity in a Fractured World, how should I vote? Oh, Matt. This is why people don't want to come on the show. <laughs> Are you kidding? This is, that's a fine question. It, it's, a, it's a fair question. So there's yeah. two components to that answer. One of them is that... Um, political doctrines are not identical with political policies. And so if you're a Christian going into the booth, voting booth, um, you should go in there with a concern for the poor. Does that mean you should go in there with a plan to vote for the candidate who wants a 70% marginal tax rate? Well, maybe if you think that's the policy that will lift up the poor. No, but... the answer is no, no, don't do that. No, don't do that. Sorry. Carry on. But it's a different question than should you care about the poor as a Christian? Um, so I want to make the distinction. You have to be a little careful because you can make the distinction in such a way where policy questions kind of become, well, we all shrug and who can say, um, and you, it kind of becomes an excuse to be lazy in how you think about policy, because I, I care about the right things and I think this policy will do it. And I may or may not have done the work to understand the policy. Um, so don't abuse the distinction, but it is important to make that distinction, I think. Um, 
and that connects to the other piece here is that again because different communities have organized themselves differently for good reasons relative to their existence together um, I don't think you can say that there's a single policy that is across the board, the Christian policy on whatever the issue might be. Um, there's a book called, it was very popular in Catholic circles, called Before Church and State by Andrew Willard Jones. Um, Milbank wrote the foreword. So it's, it's a super Milbankian book. Um, the intro is worth the price of the book, and then the remaining 300 pages are super deep dive into primary historical sources, which as a history major I loved, but not for everyone. But what Jones is arguing in the book is that in the late medieval world, they understood peace as the natural state, and yet the peace manifests itself differently in different places. So he used the example, say there's a dispute where the, the local lord wants to kick these peasants off his land that are having their cattle graze there. Um, the way moderns look at that is we want to have some kind of tight, defined law about private property that applies in all cases. And what Jones says the medievals did is they said, well, how long have the peasants been using the land in this way? Um, why are they using the land in this way? And they want to understand the particular case and make a judgment that will serve the life of that place. And that obviously gets much messier than um, the way that we often do politics today. But I find it in instructive as an example of how we can think about these things um, in that we're attending first to the health of communities ordered around general principles and then we're moving into the specific questions about policy x or policy y so with that and kind of a kind of a less last turn here uh, we've been focused on all these kind of high pollutant theoretical <laughs> Uh, angles and political, you know, political and economic ideologies connected to the thesis of your book, but a lot of it is a lot more practical than that. Uh, directly practical, not that theory isn't practical, uh, <laughs> but um, but you talk about the practices of community, Sabbath, and the chief end of man, the membership and work. Those are three of your uh, centrally clustered chapters about um, approaches towards uh, living in or ending or, or kind of dealing with the uh, fractured world we're in. I, I'm, I'm kind of curious, in a sense for you, uh, of those areas that you've given your thought, and as you were thinking through and writing these chapters, uh, kind of what do I want to tell pastors, what do I want to tell other Christians? Um, for you, the practices that you're advocating, which has been most formative for you in kind of restoring your uh, sense of, in a sense of integration, your, mm. uh, you know, uh, tamping down the alienation of work, uh, bringing you closer, able to love those across the various aisles that you seem to find yourself from who are uh, mm -hmm. uh, just have no view 
of the same common good that, that, that you're advocating. So I'm kind of curious in a sense, what part of that, um, and could you expand on that? What part of, has brought you closer to an appreciation of the fact that you share a common good with our neighbors, even if they have no sympathy for what you think that is? <laughs> Um, two things come to mind. The first is a, a good practice of the Sabbath um, should create space for relationship. Um, it can't for everybody because a lot of people have to work on Sundays. Or they have various other responsibilities. But hopefully if you're practicing a regular Sabbath, you're able to have that as a day of offering unhurried time to people, um, which is something that I think a lot of people are hungry for. Uh, related to that, when I think about work, the argument I make in the book about work is that work is one of the primary ways through which we fulfill the law of love, to love God and love neighbor. Hmm. And I think what gets lost a lot is because our work gets evaluated in market terms, um, often disconnected from the effect that the market has on the rest of our lives. Although just yesterday I saw um, a bunch of corporations are now saying that they have responsibilities, not just to shareholders in the business, but stakeholders, which is people implicated in the products. Uh, Joe Carter had a post about it at Acton, um, which is what I read. But anyway, um, when you think about work as a means of serving neighbor, hopefully it does shape the way that you think about whatever professional work you do. But hopefully it also frees you to think about work more expansively. So mm. the example I use in the book is a family that we know here in Lincoln, um, where they're empty nesters and the wife does well with her job. And so they don't need another salary to live. And so I think what a lot of people would probably do in this situation is say, well, this is great. We can have another salary and have an even bigger house or a nicer vacation home, or this is great. I can just pursue personal hobbies and do whatever I want. But what the, the husband has done is he's actually identified, or it seems like he's done this, I haven't talked to him about it a ton, but just from looking at what he does, he's identified lots of needs in Lincoln, lots of ways he can work for the good of the city that for one reason or another aren't paid. And so he serves on several neighborhood boards, he volunteers in youth sports, and he organizes a food distribution ministry. And all of that is work. Um, it's hard work in some cases, but it's not professional work. And so I think there's a pressure to kind of sideline that or see that as, well, when something has to give in your schedule or your budget, that's the first thing that gives. And so what I really have found just helpful in their example is when you relate your work to serving neighbor, it changes the decisions that you make. Mm. Um, and 
the degree to which it can do that is going to depend a ton on your financial situation, of course, which is a limitation that requires more thought. But that would be one other example is just to think about, I have talent, I have abilities, I have some degree of time. Um, what work needs to be done to make our church healthier, to make our neighborhood better, um, and to then pursue that kind of work, because that that is good work. That's fulfilling what God calls us to do in the creation mandate, even though it's not work that is widely recognized in society. This is, this is why I'll just pitch. This is the kind of uh, depth that I really appreciated in this book. Um, even the parts where I had big question marks and it's like, where's Jake going? There was so much in it that I, I just thought this was, it was a really helpful work for people to uh, get through and think through and be challenged by even, even the sections where it's like, Oh no, a, a Wendell Berry quote. Okay. I get past that. And, and then uh, uh, I was even challenged by that. And so it was, it's, it's a great book. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't picked it up already, you should. Well, this brings us to the end of our show. Um, if you are looking for a way forward through our current time, I can think of no better starting point than this book. There are many things that I love about this volume and which we hope will be in your hands. But above all, I love how Jake Meador is so accessible as he lays out a path that avoids not only problems of the Christianity and culture models of my generation, but also those of his. There is deep reading and learning behind this eminently readable essay. Oh, that's not me, though I agree with it in full. That's Tim Keller uh, from the forward. And so, which is a ringing endorsement of a terrific book. Jake, thanks for coming on the show. We'll definitely have you on again because we have yeah. more questions to sort out. I, I really want to know who I should vote for in 2020. Um, so I look forward to you answering that for me. Thanks. Yeah, thank uh, but you. seriously, it's great having you on. <laughs> Thanks for having me. This is fun. Uh, do pick up the book. It is In Search of the Common Good, Christian Fidelity in a Fractured World. Uh, dear listeners, we are so grateful for your time, for your attention, for your support. Uh, if you've quit listening at this point, don't. we? Because the expression of gratitude is the most important thing. We would not exist were it not for you. Um, we're very excited about this year, as I mentioned at the beginning. Um, please do send us show ideas. We always read them and look forward to considering them. Um, if there are passages of, of scripture, particularly, one thing that we would like to do is actually devote a number of shows over the next year to just reading various bits of scripture carefully. So if there are passages that you would like us to consider, please do send us a note and put those up and, and watch for us on Twitter as well. We may mention that as well. Uh, to support us financially, monetarily, it's it's, it's hugely helpful. It, it helps us grow the show, which is something that we'd like to do. Uh, visit uh, Patreon. Uh, you can see the link to it in the show notes at Mere Orthodoxy. Um, but uh, we are grateful, as always, for your time and attention. Until next time, this has been Mere Fidelity. Mere Fidelity.